Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to SCOTUS 101. GC, we've only got a few weeks to go before the court's winter recess, so what has the court been up to? Well, there are a couple of orders to note from last week. First, the court dismissed Brooks v. Abbott, a 14th Amendment challenge to Texas's redistricting plan, for lack of jurisdiction. Now, this is one of those rare cases where the court has mandatory appellate jurisdiction. So what explains the dismissal for lack of jurisdiction? Probably the fact that the challengers filed their appeal too late. Rookie mistake. Interesting. The court also granted certiorari in Jack Daniels versus VIP Products. This is an amusing case that examines the relationship between copyright and parody. Jack Daniels, as you probably know, makes whiskey, and they have a really distinctive old-fashioned label. VIP Products, on the other hand, makes a dog toy that looks (laughs) very similar to Jack Daniels' bottle and label, but with some notable differences. Where the liquor bottle says Jack Daniels, the toy says Bad Spaniels, (laughs) and includes a cartoon of a dog that looks like it just got caught doing something naughty. Now, where the bottle says Old Number 7 brand Tennessee Whiskey, the toy says The Old Number 2 on your Tennessee carpet. And where the bottle says 40% alcohol by volume, the toy says 43% poo by volume. Now, Jack Daniels says that this toy tarnishes its brand and violates its trademark. VIP product retorts that this is all just cumulus <laughs> parody. Well, I don't know about you, GC, but I'm thinking this might make for an interesting uh, oral argument. <laughs> yeah, I think? Think so. I think so. Um, Lisa Blatt is uh, standing in for uh, Jack Daniels. And because of she's such a veteran there, she... Uh, tends to be able to get away with a little bit more with the justices than other <laughs> advocates. So I, I can imagine that there will be some laughter here. All right. Well, once it gets set for argument, we'll have to put it on our calendars and make it a must-listen <laughs> event. <laughs> well, speaking of oral arguments, the court heard oral arguments in four cases this week. Two involved white-collar criminal issues and are worth briefly mentioning, Simonelli versus U.S. and Percoco versus U.S., In Simonelli, the court was being asked to decide whether the Second Circuit's right-to-control theory of fraud, which treats the deprivation of complete and accurate information bearing on a person's economic decision as a species of property of fraud, whether that states a valid basis of liability under the federal wire fraud statute. In Percoco, the court is being asked to decide whether a private citizen who holds no elected office or government position but who has informal, political, or other influence over government decision-making owes a fiduciary duty to the general public such that he can be convicted of honest services fraud. A set of very interesting uh, white-collar-related cases. The court also heard arguments in Wilkins versus United States. Our friends at Pacific Legal are representing Mr. Wilkins. And that case will decide whether the Quiet Title Act statute of limitations is jurisdictional. Now, before you zone out, it all sounds very esoteric, but... It does. (laughs) These sorts of procedural questions actually hide some really interesting issues. They do. (laughs) (laughs) If a statute of limitations is jurisdictional, then it's set in stone. If not, however, a court can toll it in the interest of justice. 
if a court can toll the statute of limitations, in this case, we may get to the merits of the underlying issue, which are the plaintiffs here live near a national forest in Montana and a road passes by their homes. According to the terms of an old easement, the Federal Forest Service is allowed to use that road, but the general public may not. The Forest Service, however, has opened the road to the public. Apparently, it took the plaintiffs a long time to realize that the road had been open to the public. From their briefs, it seems like traffic didn't pick up until fairly recently, but it brought with it theft, trespassing, and even the shooting of plaintiff Mr. Wilkins' cat. Oh, my goodness. So they missed the deadline to file their lawsuit. Uh, and hence the present fight over the statute of limitations. Well, that brings us to our fourth and final case. The court heard arguments in this week, and it was United States versus Texas. And yes, it is another U.S. versus Texas case. I don't know how commentators are going to be able to keep these cases straight in the future. You can't even call them all, you know, you can't even number them U.S. v. Texas 1, 2, and 3 because some of them are U.S. v. Texas, right. some are Texas v. United States, some are Texas versus Biden, and another one is Biden versus Texas. Right. Nope. That's exactly right. Uh, but this is the just the latest iteration in the ongoing saga <laughs> between the federal <laughs> government and the state of Texas. Uh, and essentially, in this case, the state of Texas is challenging the Biden administration's policy of prioritizing certain illegal aliens for arrest and deportation. Broadly speaking, the justices are being asked to address three issues. One, whether the Biden administration's policy was legal Two, whether the states challenging the policy had standing or the legal ability to do so. And three, whether a federal district court judge has the ability to set aside the policy. Now, under a September 2021 legal memorandum, DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said that certain illegal aliens should be prioritized for deportation. Texas and Louisiana challenged the policy and federal district court judge Drew Tipton agreed and vacated it nationwide. Now, given the thorny legal issues at play, this oral argument was a marathon and lasted almost two and a half hours with the standing and vacature issues dominating the bulk of argument time. Justice Elena Kagan implied that the state's theory of injury, that they were harmed because of the additional costs such as health care and law enforcement costs due to the administration's policy, would essentially give states the ability to challenge any federal policy that they simply disliked. On the vacature point, Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger argued that under relevant federal law, district courts could only set aside agency actions in the cases before them and could not set aside the policy altogether. As Amy Howe over at SCOTUS blog points out, three of the justices who spent time on the D.C. Circuit which deals with many administrative law issues, seems skeptical of this position. Chief Justice Roberts called the position radical, and Justice Brett Kavanaugh agreed, saying that this position would be, quote, a pretty radical rewrite of the law. Even Justice Jackson, who briefly spent some time on the D.C. Circuit, seemed to take issue with this position. So, regardless of the outcome of the case, it will likely have important implications not only in the immigration context, but also in the administrative law context as well. Well, we still don't have any opinions yet, but that's not out of the ordinary at this point in the term. We'll probably start getting them in mid-December. So, Zach, who's our interview this week? This week, we have Ambassador Sam Brownback. We'll be back with that interview right after this. 
The Heritage Foundation takes the field on offense with their Young Leaders Program. I'm Evelyn Homily from Hillsdale College. I'm Harrison Stewart from the University of Virginia. I'm a journalism intern with The Daily Signal. I'm a digital productions intern in communications. For spring, summer, and fall semesters, the Heritage Foundation hosts undergraduate and postgraduate interns right here in the nation's capital to train our country's future conservative leaders. As a Daily Signal intern, I've had the opportunity to cover exciting events here in D.C. and work in a fast-paced environment with some of the conservative movement's best journalists. In YLP, interns are on the cutting edge of the conservative movement, attending exclusive briefings from heritage experts, members of Congress, and movement leaders fighting for the fate of our country. It's been exciting connecting with big names in the political world and better understanding our nation's greatest threats. If you want to go on offense with other passionate, dedicated conservatives, go to heritage.org intern to learn more about the Young Leaders Program. We're pleased to be joined today by the Honorable Sam Brownback, who currently leads the Brownback Group and has previously served in a number of high-profile elected and appointed positions. Ambassador Brownback, welcome to the show. Hey, it's a pleasure to join you, Zach. Well, we really appreciate it, and I'm looking forward to our conversation today. And I thought we could start with your legal career. I know you graduated from the University of Kansas with your law degree in 1982 and entered private practice. And you were appointed only four years later as Kansas's youngest Secretary of Agriculture. How did that come about, and was that move into public service something you had always wanted to do? Well, I believe in divine intervention, and I think that's what happened. Uh, you know, it was highly unusual. Here I was a practicing lawyer uh, to be Secretary of Agriculture. That's a position they have for people that are generally in agriculture, the agricultural business. Now, I was teaching agricultural law at K-State as an adjunct, uh, and I was doing extension work in that, so I was traveling the state quite a bit, and I had an extensive agriculture background. I'd been a farm broadcaster. My undergraduate degree was in agriculture economics. I'd been a national and a state FFA officer, Future Farmers of America, so I knew farming, and the farmers knew me, uh, and we were right in that uh, phase of the 80s where there was just this huge tumult within the agricultural industry. Uh, we'd had lots of farm bankruptcies in the early 80s. Uh, and so somebody like me that kind of knew the legal background, that knew uh, agriculture and was willing to try new things, uh, kind of seemed to fit the bill. And public service is something that I wanted to do uh, since really I'd been my state FFA president, state president of Future Farmers. I'd met a congressman. I thought, that's a really interesting job. I wonder how you get a job like that. I'd never met one before. Hmm. I was from a small community of 250 people, and we lived out in the country. So I'd, congressman just didn't come to our community. But um, once I had met one, and I, I looked at that, and I thought, I'd love to have that kind of work. And hmm. um, divine intervention then. Well, speaking of being a congressman, uh, I know in 1994 you ran and were elected to represent Kansas in the U.S. House of Representatives, and then only two years later in 1996, the people of Kansas elected you to represent them in the U.S. Senate uh, when you completed Bob Dole's term when he left the Senate to run for president. And I wanted to ask you about a couple of specific uh, issues you championed while you were in the Senate. I know one of those was the first comprehensive federal anti-trafficking law, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act of 2000, which made human trafficking a federal offense. Can you tell us a little bit about this bill and why it was needed? 
Well, you know, human trafficking, most people didn't even see it as an issue uh, then. They didn't think it even existed. Uh, and I had a staff member that had come into my office uh, working on these issues, particularly trafficking in the Sudan. We were seeing uh, uh, Christians, African Christians from the south being trafficked uh, into the north uh, to be slaves uh to uh, the people in the north, the Arab Muslims, mostly in the north. Uh, And I was just stunned uh, that this was taking place. Here it is, you know, it's 1997, I think, when I first hear about this. Uh, And I'm thinking, this can't be. And, you know, part of my background as a Kansan, and not only just a Kansan, my mom was raised on the property where John Brown would stay when he was in Oswatomie, Kansas. You may remember in your history at Harper's Ferry, of they course. yell in at him where he's captured and said, is that Oswatomie Brown in there? Because Brown had made his name in the Battle of Oswatomie where his son had been killed. One of his sons had been killed and he declared there, there would not be peace in this land until the issue of slavery is resolved. So the issue of anti-slavery was very deep within me. And so when I heard it was going on, I, I thought, we've got to do something to push back against this. And, and that's what really drew me into it. And, um, and I was happy to be a part of that very first traffic, anti-trafficking bill. That's fantastic. Are there any particular actions that the federal or state governments should be taking today uh, to continue combating this, this problem that unfortunately still exists? You know, I, I think the, 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 the federal government and many governments around the world have really stepped up since this bill. At first, a lot of governments and places just denied that it happened. They just said, no, nah, this isn't going on. And then eventually they would kind of say, well, yeah, there's some cultural factors here that uh, cause this. And then now it's people go, no, no, this is wrong and it shouldn't happen. And they've started putting up a lot of, uh, of laws and uh, public awareness campaigns, and the issue has gone grassroots. I think still, honestly, the one of the things that we need to do far more of uh, is uh, to prevent people, particularly women, young women, from being trafficked into brothels. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of times in places like Bangkok and um, some other high-density um, where there's sex trafficking that taking place that's the the one of the most uh lucrative types of human trafficking still goes on uh and i think we need to combat it much more aggressively excellent now i know another issue that you focused on while you were in the senate and are still focusing on today is religious freedom And one of the pieces of legislation you co-sponsored while you were in the Senate was the International Religious Freedom Act of 1998. Uh, Can you tell us what this act did and why you supported it? Well, I I got behind it because um, I was seeing all these people, again, coming in my office and advocating for individuals that were in prison around the world simply for peacefully practicing their faith. Um. And I remember uh, one night um, I was at a softball game uh, in Kansas. Uh, I was uh, out from the Senate. I I lived in Kansas, commuted back and forth, and I got a call uh, on my cell phone that we had gotten somebody out of jail in Uzbekistan that was in there for their their faith, for simply practicing uh, Christian faith. And 
I just said, this is fantastic. I, I was I was hooked then. I really thought this is a great way to use this office to get people free. Um, and so really from then on, I started aggressively working on these religious freedom issues uh, and, and started to see really how governments persecute people of faith, particularly minority faiths, but not exclusively, particularly minority faiths all over the world. The government just really tries to subdue faith. It's the kingdom of man trying to subdue the kingdom of God. Uh, and um, I just I thought this is something we really need to work on. And, and honestly, at the end of the day, I, I think you feel, I feel, the prayers of those who are in prison or are hiding somewhere to practice their faith that they're praying to God and, and he's activating us to stand up for their freedom. Hmm. Excellent. Excellent. Were there any other specific issues or areas that you focused on while you were in the Senate? You know, one that uh, we're still working on uh, a lot uh, is the, an official apology to Native Americans for the broken treaties uh, that we did across uh, many years in the country. Uh, Kansas was supposed to be um, Oklahoma. I tell people all the Western tribes were originally moved here. And then when the Overland Trails came through, the Santa Fe, California, and Oregon, a lot of settlers came through, but they stopped partway through and started fighting with the Native Americans over the land. So a lot of the tribes were moved south. It's it still, these were, a number of these treaties were broken. Our treatment of the Native Americans in many cases was despicable. Uh, I think we owe the Native Americans an official apology. That has yet to be spoken by the President of the United States. We got a bill through. Uh, it's the law of the land. It was a rider on a defense appropriation defense appropriation bill. Uh, but we're still working to get the president to speak out an official apology to Native Americans for the number of broken treaties. And, and we need it for reconciliation in this country. I also worked a great deal on prison reform issues, helped with the Second Chance Act, and did a lot of that as governor, thinking that our prison system is is far less than than it should be if we're going to get people back into society and make them productive citizens uh, again we've got to do a lot better in our uh, prison system we need to lock people up when they commit a crime but we also need to work with them so that when they get out they can be productive citizens hmm. now i noticed that while you're in the senate you chaired the helsinki commission can you tell our listeners about the Helsinki Commission? It was um, a bit of a vestige of the Cold War era, uh, but it was a human rights forum uh, based in Helsinki, Finland, that uh, has an annual meeting where uh, major human rights issues throughout, primarily Europe and Asia, are brought up. Uh, and... You know, I, I I think it's the right thing to do. I think it's a good thing. I think it's far less than it should be because it ends up being too much of just a talk fest and not enough uh, of a do fest uh, where we're, people are doing. I shouldn't say a, a do fest, but just a sure. doing things. And that was a frustrating thing to me about the Helsinki Commission. It's, it's a good forum, but it needs to be more action-oriented. Hmm. Now, when you initially ran for the Senate, you pledged to only serve two full terms. Why did you make that term limits pledge? 
I was just a strong believer in term limits. Uh, I thought people, the way the system was designed was for people to come in, serve their country, and then go back and live under the laws that they passed. Um, and I thought we would have a better, a, a, a more vibrant system if we had term limits. Uh, now, that requires a constitutional amendment to do, and those are very difficult to get. But I made a term limits pledge. And um, I had a number of people really coming up to me and saying, oh, don't don't do that pledge. Uh, I mean, after you've made it, don't comply with it. Just a lot of people make those term limits pledges and everybody's fine if you break it. But for me, uh, one of my spiritual mentors had said to me um, when I asked him about it, he says, uh, don't break the pledge. When a man breaks his word, it breaks the man. Uh, and I thought, you know, I agree with that. Uh, and so I went across the uh, state of Kansas and told people I'm going to live by my term limits pledge um, and use that quote. Hmm. Excellent. Now, after you stuck to your term limits pledge, uh, you ran uh, for governor of Kansas and were elected and then reelected uh, to serve the people of the state as their governor. What were your main policy priorities uh, when you were serving as governor of Kansas? You know, as governor, and I was delighted to be able to serve my home state, my home people uh, as governor. Um, I did a lot on the life agenda. Uh, I signed something like 17 pro-life bills and had 17,000 fewer abortions during the period of time I was governor. I worked a lot on economic growth. Uh, we really cut taxes, particularly income taxes. Now, we weren't able to sustain that, but we were trying to get really to the Texas model of no income taxes because uh, that's the real growth model. Did a lot on water law. We uh, have a um, aquifer in the western third of the state that supplies water, and it's being used unsustainably. And we changed and transformed those laws to where now there's sustainable use in places of the Ogallala Aquifer. We did welfare reform to get people mm. back to work and um, and not um, just giving them a pittance of money on welfare that was, was really transformative for a number of individuals. Uh, prison issues I addressed, uh, getting a mentoring program for everybody that came out of prison that wanted a mentor, and that really helped reduce our recidivism rate. Transformed the, the um, Medicare program into uh, you know a, a much better one, uh, managed uh, type of care. They got better outcomes and less costs, and um, and we transformed the pension system uh, in the state of Kansas from a defined. Uh, benefit to more of a kind of a hybrid defined contribution program that made it sustainable and took it out of the bankruptcy zone, plus put more money in it. So we did a lot of a lot of issues. There was a lot of issues that were needed in my state. Uh, unfortunately, we weren't able to hold the tax changes because we really needed to if we were going to get growing again. We just haven't had the economic vitality that we need, and we lose too many of our people, our young people in particular, to places like Texas. Mm. Now, toward the end of your tenure as governor, President Trump nominated you, and the Senate confirmed you to serve as the ambassador-at-large for international religious freedom, uh, and you ultimately ended up serving in that position from February 2018 until January of 2021. How did that nomination uh, and opportunity come about? Um 
A lot of it was through Mike Pence. Uh, Mike was a, we were in Congress together. Uh, we were governors at the same time and really uh, shared a lot of the same philosophy and, and a faith orientation that um, our faith is just, uh, for each of us, is critically important uh, to us. So he reached out to me and asked me if I'd be willing to serve in that uh, ambassador's uh, role for religious freedom. And and I thought, yeah, that'd be a great uh, spot. You know, and at the time when I took the job, I was, oh, you know, I was kind of uh, thinking, well, I I want to have a much more high profile ambassadorship. I want to go to a high profile country and be an ambassador. But it turned out that that ambassador, uh, that at-large position for religious freedom, international religious freedom, was a fabulous spot. We're able to, with Secretary Pompeo, um, Vice President Pence, and President Trump, uh, make religious freedom into a major foreign policy issue for the administration mm-hmm. and a dominant human right issue. Our view was is that uh, if you get this human right correct, you can build other human rights off of it, the freedom of assembly, the freedom of speech. You get it wrong, uh, and all these others uh, degrade as well. And uh, we'd seen a degradation of the human rights project around the world. So it Mm. it became a major foreign policy issue um, for the Republican administration. And it's also the primary source of genocide around the world. Most genocides are of a religious minority, whether it's the Rohingya being pushed uh, uh, out of uh, Burma, uh, Rohingya Muslim minority being pushed out by a Buddhist majority, or mm-hmm. the Jewish Holocaust uh, during World War II. Most genocides are of a religious minority. And so we're, we were saying if we could push everybody for religious freedom, for everybody everywhere all the time, it really goes at building the human rights project for everybody and reducing genocide around the world. Mm. Well, speaking of that, you know, I know we're all familiar with the Chinese Communist Party's repression of religious minorities, specifically the Uyghurs. Is there any other area or country we should be paying attention to right now that might not be on uh, folks' radar? Well, I think it's on their radar, but my primary focus is China. You know, as you were mentioning, uh, because they're the primary enabler of human rights abuses around the world. They enable the Burmese to continue to operate uh, and uh, kick out uh, the Rohingya. They, the Chinese themselves are doing a genocide in western China of the Uyghurs that are dominantly Muslims. Uh, if the Chinese didn't uh, back Putin, and is, uh, there wouldn't be a war going on in the Ukraine right now. In my estimation, the Chinese clearly could have stopped that. And it was their um, acquiescence to it that, that let it continue then, that has it taking place. And then the Chinese seek to displace us as the lead country around the world. They want this authoritarian, um, atheistic um dictatorial government model to be the dominant model in the world. And they've been gaining ground and adherence, and they're exporting their virtual police state technology that targets targets specifically the religious communities, the Christians, the Muslims, the Falun Gong, the Buddhist. Um, I, this is a this is a great threat to democracy worldwide, and it's certainly a great threat to 
uh, our leadership and our model of leadership of an open society. Certainly. Let me ask you this. You know, we focus a lot on China, rightfully so, with all of their human rights abuses. What's the state of religious liberty in other places around the globe? And I'm thinking specifically of Western Europe uh, right now. You know, I saw a recent report that the Crown Prosecution Service in England and Wales, uh, in a court filing there, said that there are references in the Bible which are simply no longer appropriate in modern society and which would be deemed offensive if stated in public. What's your reaction to that? Well, my reaction is, is that's wrong on their part, on the government's part. Um, and we need to stand up for religious freedom in Western countries. And West and religious freedom is under attack in Western democracies. Um, we had a lady uh, speak uh, this past summer. It was from Finland, uh, a physician, had been a parliamentarian for 20 years and posted Bible verses all she did was post Bible verses, uh, and they charged her with hate speech and hate crimes, and the case went to court. Now, she won it at the lower court, and we'll see if she's able to hold it on appeal. I, I pray she can, but you know, this is the attack on religious freedom that we're seeing happening in Western countries, where if the culture no longer agrees with the values that your religion is putting forward, they categorize it as hate speech. Mm. Uh, and you go, no, no, this is religious freedom. People, they're peacefully practicing their faith, but they have a certain set of beliefs that they believe are God-ordained and given by God that they're going to try to follow. Uh, and that's not hate speech, that's faith. And you have a free exercise clause in the Constitution that allows you to do that. You know, one of the examples I give to people uh, is we've got a number of Amish in the state of Kansas, and uh, certain sects of the Amish uh, don't believe in their uh, children going to school past the age of 16. Well, the state has a law that you've got to go to school until you're age 18. Um, but what we did is worked out an accommodation. Now, there were some lawsuits on it first, but worked out an accommodation to where uh, their, their students would get a GED, uh, but wouldn't have to go to school past the age of 16. Um, and th this is their strongly held religious belief. It's my uh, view that we've, we've really got to stand up uh, for this right of faith to have standards that sometimes in our culture we, we find difficult or something we don't really agree with, with modern culture. But it's their faith tradition that they've had for thousands of years. Uh, and it's, it's honorable. It's peaceful. They're not trying to put it on somebody else. They're saying this is what we're going to hold ourselves to as a mm. standard. And um, I think we've really got to stand up for that or you're going to lose the religious diversity that's been a hallmark and that's been a part of our founding as our country. We've got to fight for this free exercise clause. Do you think this will be the biggest issue facing religious liberty here in the United States over the next several years, this potential conflict of certain public accommodations type laws and religious uh, liberty issues? And I'm thinking specifically of two cases that come to mind, the Jack Phillips cake baker case out of Colorado and the 303 creative website designer case, which is also out of Colorado, uh, where these two individuals are essentially being told, you know, comply with Colorado's uh, anti-discrimination laws or uh, face stiff fines and penalties? I do think it's going to be a major issue for us as a society. And 
You know, the sad part about it is it doesn't need to be. We've, we've had different views of different people's religious convictions since we've been a republic, since before we were a country. And we've always found a way to accommodate, saying, okay, you, know, you guys view it this way, the rest of us don't, uh, but you can go ahead and, and do that. Uh, just, you know, we, we just found a ways to accommodate people. And instead now, it seems like we're trying to find ways to fight about it. Hmm. Uh, and saying, well, okay, uh, uh, the cake baker case, the couple that wants a wedding cake, uh, I'll tell you two or three other bakers that will bake you a wedding cake. I said, no, I want it from you. And if you won't give it to me, I'm going to sue you and I'm going to make a big deal out of this and trying to wreck you and ruin your business. Almost like it's it's more of a crusade uh, than it is about getting a wedding cake, and I, I do think these are these are sad. I don't think they're necessary, but I do think they're a, a prevalent feature of uh, this divided country that that we have now. That's dividing so much along cultural lines and and lines of belief about what God thinks and what uh, what people says he stands for or doesn't stand for, mm. or whether he exists at all. Mm. I want to ask you quickly, if I can, about uh, one piece of current legislation pending before Congress, the Respect for Marriage Act. I know I and many of my colleagues at Heritage have criticized uh, this piece of legislation and raised concerns about it not uh, having enough robust protections for religious liberty in that bill. Uh, what are your thoughts on that piece of legislation? I, I think it's one of those classical slippery slope bills that you pass this law, it'll give license to federal agencies, probably particularly the IRS, to start defining further, pushing the edges of it, hoping that they can find a favorable judge to rule in their favor um, that goes right at our uh, fundamental First Amendment constitutional right to peacefully practice our faith given our sincerely held religious beliefs. So it's just, I just think that this is not the way for us to go. The Supreme Court has ruled in Obergefell uh, about uh, same sex marriage. Uh, this is uh, not uh, needed, and I, I think it really does open the the opportunity for government agencies to further define away people's religious freedom. That's a fundamental constitutional right. Absolutely. Now, when the Biden administration came into office, you left your post as ambassador at large and founded the Brownback Group. What type of work are you doing there? Doing a lot of human rights work. I've uh, chaired an International Religious Freedom Summit that uh, we've done twice, going to do a third time, January 31st, February 1st of next year, uh, just in front of the National Prayer Breakfast. And we also have founded the National Committee for Religious Freedom. It's a 501c4 uh, mm. to get behind candidates and do educational campaigns on uh, the free exercise clause and electing candidates to school boards and Congress and state legislature that will fight for people's free exercise clause. We don't need to get a majority in a lot of these bodies, but we need to get people there to raise the questions uh, and to stand up uh, for free exercise. We're winning court cases, but we need to be able to win uh, political cases uh, as well. And, and most of the American public is with us. They want people to be able to peacefully practice their faith. 
it's it's part of who we are. Now the culture moves hard against us, uh, pushing back against that. But but most people know in their heart, gosh, it's hard to to have a diverse nation if you don't honor and protect people's mm-hmm. rights to have religious diversity and religious freedom. Absolutely. Well, Ambassador Brownback, we have a question that we ask all of our guests here on SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? You know, I at first it I, I thought about it and I, I thought it would really be Scalia, who I, I knew and and just had the greatest respect for just to thank him for standing up and be bold. But actually, it would be to have a conversation with Justice Alito just to encourage him for standing up and having the uh, the guts uh, to to do the right thing legally, mm-hmm. not not politically, but legally. Uh, Roe versus Wade was never in the Constitution. It was a made up law and they struck it down. And most people that complain about the Dobbs case, they're not complaining about that it was badly decided legal opinion. They just don't like the outcome. Well, that's not the job of the Supreme Court. Supreme Court's job is to call them balls and strikes. Uh, It's not to be a player on the field. And I would just, it would be with Justice Alito just to encourage him and to thank him and the majority on the Supreme Court that was willing to stand up and take the hits uh, to do what was right. Uh, And I thought the Dobbs case uh, really helped clarify the and and stand up for the rule of law in this country which we don't want to be governed by men we want to be a governed mm. governed by laws and what the laws say and they did that and it would it'd be to encourage and to thank him for doing it mm. well excellent well ambassador brownback thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on scotus 101 it's been a fantastic conversation and i hope you'll join us again in the future thank you zach my pleasure take care on to trivia, Zach. Oh, my favorite time of the episode. <laughs> my favorite time of the episode. I think you All just right. enjoy tormenting me a little bit over here, GC. Oh, absolutely. No secrets <laughs> there. So at least once a term, we turn to the excellent empirical research done by Dr. Adam Feldman, who runs mm. the blog Empirical SCOTUS, for interesting trivia about the court. He has been following uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson's first few oral arguments and plotting or or keeping track of who is speaking the most. I'm going to bet she is. Uh, Correct. (laughs) By now, uh, everyone who lives anywhere uh, knows that Justice Jackson talks a lot during oral arguments. With just a few months on the bench, she has broken all sorts of records. Dr. Feldman looked at how many words each of the current justices, including uh, Justice Breyer, spoke during their first eight oral arguments all combined. Justice Jackson, of course, spoke the most. Can you guess who the runner-up was? Now, this is including Justice Breyer as well. Is that correct? Correct. correct. And we're only looking at their first eight arguments. You know, I don't know, GC, but my guess would be either Justice Sotomayor or Justice Breyer, uh, because they certainly both have reputations uh, for speaking a lot at oral arguments. That is a very good guess. But actually, this one came as a complete surprise to me. It was Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Oh, interesting. Now, for reference, in her first eight arguments combined, Justice Barrett spoke 4,400 words thereabouts. 
Just mm. ballpark. How much more do you think Justice Jackson spoke than Justice Barrett? Oh, my goodness. I think a safe guess would be to double it. <laughs> yeah, that is safe. In fact, almost triple it. Uh, more than 11,000 words in her first wow. eight oral arguments. Okay. Now, of those 10 justices, who do you think spoke the second least? Now, of course, Thomas spoke the least. There's no surprise there. So that would be too easy. But second least, uh, who do you think that might be? You know, I don't know, GC. Uh, so this is really just a guess. Uh, honestly, I might have said Justice Barrett, but obviously I was very wrong on that <laughs> point. I'll guess Justice Alito. Uh, Good guess, Zach. Actually, you got that right. That's, that's oh, exactly excellent. right. Justice Alito is the only other justice besides Justice Thomas to speak less than a thousand words. Interesting. But I will say, like Justice Thomas, GC, he makes great use of the questions he does ask. That is that is correct. You really don't need to speak that much, I think. You know, if you've got your questions down, they go right to the heart of the case. Um, it's not necessary. But hmm. moving on. Justice Jackson disagrees with me, and she is a Supreme Court justice, and I am not. So there hmm. you have it. Now, Justice Jackson's love of waxing lyrical peaked in the UNC race preference case. Remember, she was recused from the related Harvard case. Who do you think was the runner-up behind Justice Jackson in that case, and uh, how close do you think it was? Well, I'm going to go back to my safe guess. I'm going to say Justice Sotomayor uh, would be the runner-up, and I don't know, but again, I would say that Justice Jackson would have spoken almost double of any other justice. Right on both scores. So Justice Jackson spoke uh, something like 2,800 words during the UNC argument alone. To put that in perspective, Justice Jackson in the UNC case alone spoke only 23 words less than Justice Sotomayor spoke in both cases combined. Well, I just want to be clear, GC, I don't have any idea how many words the justices spoke, but I'm just thinking in terms of when you're listening to the argument, yes. how long the justices seem to speak. And again, Justice Jackson and Justice Sotomayor certainly seem to uh, have spoken a lot. They certainly argument. did. So of all the other current justices and Justice Breyer, how many do you think have spoken more than 2,000 words during any of their first eight oral arguments? No idea. <laughs> yeah, fair, fair enough. Uh, it's hard. You know, uh, Dr. Feldman was, you know, picking numbers this way to be um, accurate. But, you know, it's not really how most people think of it. Um, but uh, fair enough. The answer is none. And actually, it's not even close. Um, so it was a trick question on top of that, GC? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Dirty pool over here. Dirty Zach, pool. <laughs> you, have, you really have been doing really well with trivia this this uh, season so far, oh. and it's been uh, really disheartening to me. So right, I decided right. to uh, be all a little right. mean to you today. <laughs> You'll have to forgive me. Hey, keep, keep buttering me up here. That's, that's acceptable. <laughs> so who do you think uh, has spoke uh, the second most amongst in any, in any of their first eight oral arguments? So this is excluding Justice Jackson. You're saying other than Justice Jackson. Correct, correct. Other than who, Justice Jackson, who do you think spoke the second most in any of their eight original arguments? And again, this is including the current justices and Justice Breyer as correct, well? Correct, correct. You know, I'm not sure, but I, again, I would guess either Justice Breyer or Justice Sotomayor. Again, safe guesses, and you are correct. That would be Justice Breyer, mm. uh, who started off very quiet and then uh, spoke quite a lot in a case called Nebraska Department of Revenue versus Lowenstein. Mm. All right, final question. 
Justice Jackson spoke more than any of the other justices in seven of her eight first oral arguments, but one oral argument, she came in third. Uh, Do you know which one that would be? And to give you a hint, it is one of the arguments she heard on her first day on the court. Well, the case that comes to mind from the first day is Sackett versus the EPA. So I'm going to guess Sackett. Exactly right. Exactly right. Well, I appreciate the hint, GC. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Zach. Well done. Well, thank you. It was interesting trivia today. Tough, uh, but it's, uh, I always enjoy when we dive into uh, Adam Feldman's uh, stats pack. And that's all we have for today. Thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.